The parables of Jesus weren't originally written for us. So, for example, the three stories in Luke chapter 15 about being lost and then found were um, told by Jesus to one section of religious uh, Jewish society in the first century to explain why he was choosing to hang out with a very different group of um, Israelite society in the first century. And we know that because in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And so the, the story of the lost sheep belongs to its day, in a sense. Contrary to the religious purity codes of the day, which shames those outside of it, it proposes that God will rejoice when misfit groups will um, be restored back into first century Jewish society. The story is absolutely explosive. Don't let's underestimate it. And don't let us think of Jesus entirely as a gentle Jesus, meek and mild kind of saviour. He's radical here. He's challenging. He's waking things up. He's shaking people up to how things operate when God is really in charge. Like all great stories, it starts with the lost sheep, an ordinary situation where we can say, yes, I recognise that. Yes, that's my life. Yes, something, yes, that's something to do with me. I get it. And the setting for us this morning is a shepherd who loses one of his sheep. Now, not many of us here this morning are farmers, I know that, but perhaps we can use our imagination quite well. Although I say that, our development manager, Jill, at Regent Hall, woke up the very morning that I started to prepare this teaching um, to find these beauties, these sheep in her back garden, and she sent me a picture. And soon after, the farmer came looking to find his sheep, knocked on the door. So it does happen. So we, we can get the context of this story. We can also maybe get, get the context that the lost sheep represents a sinner. What we might not so easily get, I fear, is who the sinner who the sinner actually is. You see, in our world today, the church no longer has enough cultural influence be to be telling society who a sinner is and who the righteous person is. So the world will say, well, no one's a sinner, it's all relative. And the church might say, but aren't we all sinners before God? There's some truth in all of that. But in Luke's world, it's very clear. A sinner is a violator, a violator, an outsider, somebody who's outside the norms of formal Israelite religion. In Luke's world, there's a law and a code and you have to follow it. In Luke's world, if you're inside the, the institution, your purity will be stained and damaged by association with someone outside of it. You worry about the spiritual damage of those you keep company with. In Luke's world, some are just so habitually outside the ways of God, they need repentance. And some are so inside keeping the law, they just don't. And we have to accept this, uncomfortable as it might be to us, on its own terms. That Jesus makes friends with tax collectors, sinners, collaborators with the Roman powers, lawbreakers, is therefore not okay. And the truth is that friendship 
with outsiders in Luke's world is a provocative thing. So the grumbling of the religious leaders, in a way, makes some kind of sense. But Jesus turns this right round, embracing those that religious society rejects in order to let his goodness rub off on them. What's the twist then in the story? I said there would be a twist. And the hook is, I think, that this story is less about the sinner than it is about who God is for us today. And within that, there's a few other little sub-twists. The first one is that this story isn't about two different types of people at all. It's about two different kinds of responses. In truth, we all, all of us, Pharisees and scribes, tax collectors and sinners, you and me, we all have mixed motives. At issue are two different types of responses. Those who know they're lost and are open to being found and those who aren't. And Jesus breaks this right open. The second twist is that whilst Jesus recognises the sinner in Luke's world, he doesn't condemn or judge. Zero comment on sinful behaviour. And that's a U-turn for those obsessed with the religious purity code. Now we know misfits and sinners love to be around Jesus. Why is that? Excluding a great personality maybe, Jesus brings sinners home not by condemning them, not by punishment, but by eating with them and calling them friends. And the third twist is God's relentless love for us. <clears throat> From within his own Jewish tradition, Jesus offers a different radical vision of the divine purpose. It's the stunning commitment of the shepherd to leave, to go after, to bring us home, to find us and to celebrate the finding. The idea that God relentlessly seeks us in love is for Luke's audience to imagine such a different world, to the world of judgment and shame they've been used to. And the final twist is God's lavish rejoicing over us. The shepherd parties over the lost sheep. Now, honestly, that's a bit over the top, isn't it? That the shepherd actually parties. But in Luke's word, a world, redemption is always a meal and a feast. Rejoicing means celebration. And such is the over-the-top, extravagant joy with which God in Christ welcomes us all into relationship. And the story raises a big question, I guess, for us this morning. How do we react without grumbling to a God who cannot help welcoming anyone and everyone home? For underlying this story is a gracious mercy that keeps seeking and finding and transforming in the most unlikely place. And it's transformation which happens not as a result of punishment or judgment or shunning or rejection, but eternally gracious compassion. How do we welcome like that in a way that doesn't grumble, that doesn't say, but that's not fair, that's not, that's not, that's mean, that's not fair on me. But God sets the terms and says there are no limits to God's capacity to welcome us back. 
the shepherd like the father in the prodigal son story which comes up almost immediately after says Walter Brueggemann is a radical threat to those who feel that it's their role to judge and to punish others and is there one more even deeper twist for us this morning is there one more thing to be found for us you see if we were all made in God's image to lose a sinner would be tantamount to God losing part of God's own self. So without us, God is in one sense at least incomplete until we are found. And God is determined to have his family together. Finding the sinner therefore for us is to find in that sinner God's image and God's image bearer. You see, God's imprint in us is indelible, even in tax collectors, even in Pharisees and scribes, even in you and me. And we are invited as, as one amongst sinners to help God seek and find God's image in all that seems lost. And there's a lot of lostness around our world at the moment, a lot of mixed motives. As we come out of the pandemic, so much lostness, lost people, lost, lost causes, lost projects, lost jobs. There's going to be a lot of blame too, a lot of blame culture as we come out of this. Whose fault it was, who takes responsibility. I'm not for one denying the need for accountability, but there's going to be a big blame culture. It wasn't me, it was you. So we might not easily name sinners, but we're always at risk of screening out misfits and rebels who've either lost their bearings or drifted to the margins. What does it look like in that context to imagine the welcoming of sinners? Like Jesus, we take sides on behalf of life's losers. You see, if we don't, in this new world we live in, the parable will say to us, careful, it's happening all over again. The story of the lost sheep in the end isn't really, is it, about a lost sheep? Isn't it more about being welcomed by God back to where we first belonged? And isn't it about the foolish joy rooted in God's very nature, which calculates neither the cost of the sin nor the party? The depth of God's love for us is such that Paul will soon say in the letter to the Romans, for I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor anything else, in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I believe it. Do you? Amen and Amen. We're going to listen to a beautiful song now led by the worship team and we can join in and we can pray into it and it's called Reckless Love and the words go Oh, the never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I can earn it, 
I really don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the never-ending, reckless love of God. Let's sing and pray and worship together.